It's no secret that as we age, our bones shrink. Our bones can lose mass slowly with time. However, that loss can accelerate due to a couple of factors once we hit our 50s. At least 54% of postmenopausal women have osteopenia, a condition where one is considered borderline osteoporotic, and 30% of those women are considered osteoporotic, a condition when bones become so fragile and brittle that the prevalence of breaking a bone is drastically increased. By age 80, 70% of women are osteoporotic. While men naturally have denser bones, they are not protected. They have the same curve of of incidence, but effectively a 10-year lag behind women. So what are the mechanisms that cause bone mass to diminish, especially with older age? Is losing bone mass an inevitability? If not, is it preventable, if even reversible? We look to science. Hi, my name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic-level athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. Our goal with Primity is to find simple at-home techniques and strategies rooted in science to help you with your health-related goals. Our information is meant to be descriptive, not prescriptive. We will always recommend that you talk to your appropriate health and wellness professional before making any serious changes to your routines. Now, bones are a critical support structure that give us shape. Our muscles would be useless without bones to pull on, and our organs would be dangerously vulnerable without bones protection. Interestingly, bones are also where our blood cells are created. So on top of giving us shape and protection, they also provide the vital service of giving us our life's blood, and even white blood cells, for our immune system. In spite of their differences and slightly varying functioning, all bones are made up of three components. There are 30% organic component, like proteins, 10% water, and a 60% inorganic component called hydroxyapatite. Like other tissues in our body, bone is actually constantly resorbing and laying down new tissue. Osteoclasts are bone cells that break down old bone tissue, and osteoblasts help build new tissue. So think clasts like calamity and blasts as in builders. This is a crude summary of our bones and what they're made of. So now the fun part. What happens that causes them to lose mass and become brittle? First, we'll start with conventional wisdom. Whenever someone has an issue with bone density, the first thing people think of is calcium and vitamin D. Why are these important? Well, we need to go back to that 60% inorganic component, hydroxyapatite. Hydroxyapatite's chemical makeup is calcium plus phosphate plus a hydroxide group. So calcium is kind of a big deal of that inorganic makeup, so that's fairly straightforward. But we didn't say vitamin D. Vitamin D is not involved in the physical creation of bone. However, it is an important step for getting calcium and phosphate into the body. Our intestines have vitamin D receptors that help with the transport of calcium and phosphate across the intestines for absorption and utilization. So if your bones are the construction site and the minerals are being shipped to it, vitamin D is the security guard at the gate that lets them in. If no one is working the gate, then the shipment stays stuck outside. This is made evident in people with vitamin D deficiency, known as rickets. While rickets can also be caused by inadequate dietary calcium intake, 
it's more commonly associated with the vitamin D deficiency. Without vitamin D to shuttle calcium and phosphate into the body, the body has no materials to make hydroxyapatite to build bone, and thus those with rickets develop soft bones and bone deformities. This is one big driving factor behind why vitamin D is recommended for those suffering from osteopenia or osteoporosis. The structure of hydroxyapatite is hexagonal in shape, so it's able to slot nicely next to itself in a nice lattice. You can actually look up apatite gemstones, spelt A-P-A-T-I-T-E, not like your hunger, and you would actually see something that looks pretty darn close to what's created inside of our bodies. The difference, of course, is the organic components. In this case, the one worth noting is a substance called citrate. Citrate has a wide-ranging job list. Least of all is a crucial step in energy generation throughout our entire body. It is an an intermediary substrate in the Krebs cycle, which is kind of a crucial thing that essentially makes the chemical energy ATP that all of our cells run on as a fuel source. Citrate also is used during the bone remodeling process. Our osteoblasts, when building bone, use citrate to help bind and shape the apatite crystals. It is found on one-sixth of the surface of all crystal surface area, as if the crystals were the bricks and the citrate were the mortar, so to speak. Additionally, it determines the crystal thickening, which gives the bones their stability, strength, and resistance to fracture. In short, without citrate, anyone can kick down your brick wall. Given its importance of bone remodeling, the highest concentration of citrate in the body is in your bones. I wanted to talk about citrate because it can be the link between your bone health and your kidney functioning. Your kidneys are responsible for not only filtering your blood, but also reabsorbing certain things that might accidentally get filtered out of the body that it wants to hold on to, like salt and citrate. As we mentioned, citrate is crucial for all of our cells and especially in bone formation. If your kidneys didn't function properly, they can indeed excrete too much citrate. If your body is losing citrate faster than it can make it, it will naturally pull from its stores in order to keep the body functioning. And any guesses as to where our bodies have the highest concentration of citrate? Yes, the bones. We've cited an article in the show notes that cites a number of studies linking renal health and bone mass density. And hopefully to no one's surprise, Participants who had poor kidney functioning had an increased rate of bone loss than their peers who had normal kidney functioning. So one quick important step is to talk to your physician about your kidney health if your bone mass density is on the decline. Another big important piece of the puzzle that is often overlooked is physical stressors. You've been listening to Primity for a bit. You'll recall that our bodies are well adjusted to survival machine that requires too much gas is at a greater risk of running out of fuel sooner. Our bodies are designed to trim unnecessary hardware in an effort to reduce our energetic demand so that we can live to see another day. Our muscles atrophy when not used, and bones are no exception. What's interesting, however, is that there is also crosstalk between muscles and bones. It's common knowledge that the loss of muscle mass, or sarcopenia, and osteoporosis 
set up a one-two punch for a bad time as we age. However, there actually seems to be a compounding effect in both directions. Muscles have been shown to secrete myokines, or proteins that the muscles release, such as irisin, that interact with bone that can stimulate bone formation. Particularly, they talk to the osteoblasts. Additionally, bones release osteocalcin, which communicates with muscles to increase nutrient uptake and some catabolic activity in regards to repairing muscle tissue damage after use. This can go the other way as well. Muscles can release myostatin during negative catabolic conditions, which are things that make you lose muscle mass, and have been shown to increase osteoclast activity. So, when times are good, they're great, and when it rains, it pours. Given that these conditions almost always appear in tandem, and with the crosstalk, one begets another, there's even talk of simply merging the two conditions sarcopenia and osteoporosis, and simply calling them osteosarcopenia, because you almost invariably have one with the other. So then if the primary goal is to build bone mass, the completely logical step is to increase muscle mass. Just like one cannot simply eat protein and expect the muscles to grow and get stronger without working out, one should not expect bones to increase their density simply because you're ingesting enough calcium, phosphate, and vitamin D. The bones need to be loaded to stimulate their growth. And apparently the muscles need to be stimulated to help the crosstalk so that the bones can increase their osteoblast activity. So what's the best way to go about loading bones to get that adequate stimulus? Good news is that it actually doesn't need to be something sexy like jumping or movements that induce shock or ground reactive forces. 70% of the force applied to a bone is because of the muscle pulling on it, while the rest is body weight or ground reactive forces. While certain things like running and jumping are good exercises, that shock force of smacking the ground does technically challenge the bone and provide stimulus. However, these movements do involve an inherent risk of falling. And since the main demographic who desperately need to increase their muscle mass are seniors, those movements may not be the greatest tools in the toolkit with the risk-reward ratio in mind. As most of the force applied to bones comes from the muscles pulling on them, then making the muscles pull harder means you'll be applying more force to the bones. So that simple logic train means strength training. Performing movements like squats and deadlifts activate many muscle groups with one movement. They are insanely functional, meaning you'll actually use these movement patterns in real life. And because those movements are capable of moving high loads, it's possible to get high force plus strong ground reactive forces due to heavy loading of bones. Of course, appropriate scaling to fitness level is necessary. Keep in mind now, when we're talking about exercise, that we need to be working on building muscle mass and trying to avoid activities that would involve metabolism or destroying muscle mass. As we mentioned, muscles will release myostatin when in a catabolic state and lower bone density. So activities like very long duration cardio, so very long distance biking, swimming, running, 
all of those activities have been shown to be catabolic, meaning that they waste muscle tissue. So for those looking to gain bone mass density, you may need to take a hard look at your regimen and ask yourself, are my exercise choices setting me up for success? Or am I lowering my bone mass density with my choices at hand? Now, I'm not saying you need to give these up permanently, but rather make sure that's not all you're doing. If you're a one-trick pony and you're doing five-plus miles every single day all the time, then yeah, that's not a recipe for success. If you're factoring in or sprinkling in other things like circuit training, weight training, good challenging calisthenics, or high-intensity biking, swimming, rowing, running, those are things that can increase muscle mass. And then having maybe one to two days of your longer bout of durations. So give yourself some variety to help set you up for success. So are two things, in my opinion, that make up the largest argument for increasing bone density is diet and exercise. But what are the things that might be slightly outside of our control, say, hormone production? While yes, our lifestyle can indeed have an effect on hormone production, like being sedentary, stressed, and or obesity, there are other factors outside of our control, like menopause or simply aging in general, which is shown to reduce hormone production. Menopause is certainly a hot topic because there has been an observable shift in bone mass loss after menopause. The primary culprit is the change in estrogen levels. However, estrogen is not directly involved in the bone remodeling process. There is actually some controversy over the exact role estrogen plays with bone mass. It is only known from observations that when estrogen receptors are blocked in mouse studies and from observing menopausal women in real life, do we see bone mass decline. The mechanism through which it does this, however, is not known. Even more so, the same relationship is observed with estrogen and muscle mass. The literature that exists only shows observational data that when estrogen goes down, so too does muscle and bone. There are currently not any clear mechanistic explanations on specifically how estrogen controls bone and muscle mass. However, there is also plenty of evidence of exercising and appropriate calcium and vitamin D intake that not only stabilize bone loss, but can even reverse bone loss in a condition of menopause. One randomized control trial followed 39 postmenopausal women divided into two groups, those that exercised and those that did not. All participants were given the same calcium supplement to make sure that some participants weren't getting adequate while others were lacking. So all participants were getting adequate calcium intake. Exercise group worked out three times a week with a trainer performing strength movements and performed, quote, jumping exercises daily at home. All participants had their bone density measured at their proximal femur, so the part of the thigh close to the hip, and their lumbar spine at the beginning of the trial and again at the end of 52 weeks. So they did this for one year. While the percentages may seem small, the trends speak volumes. Exercise participants improved their bone mass density by 0.5%, while the control group, who did nothing but take calcium supplements, lost 
0.9% bone mass over the course of a year. Results reinforce that trying to supplement your way out of a problem is not sufficient. You have to provide the adequate physical stimulus to give the body a reason to lay down more bone. Given that these participants were all 50 plus years old, and all of them having been five years post-menopause onset, these results show that estrogen is not the end-all be-all when it comes to bone density. The body is still quite capable of adding bone mass given adequate nutrition and physical activity. Now, it should at least be said that popping pills should not be the first step in addressing many issues, but lifestyle changes ought to be at the top of the list instead. Since they rarely have negative side effects, I argue it's the lowest hanging of fruit that can be that can often have the greatest return on investment. So with that in mind, what are some good sources of calcium that we can consume in our diet? Seeds are a great source and can be used as toppings or ingredients, not just ingested by themselves. I'm a fan of using chia seeds or hemp hearts, especially in my smoothies. They're also cram full of other micronutrients, so they double as a nature's vitamin, multivitamin. Yogurt and kefir are especially loaded with calcium and are also fermented, so a great way to get probiotics and kickstart your gut flora. Leafy greens can't be beat. Also doubling as a multivitamin, you'll also get the fiber you need to keep your gut flora happy and giving them that food in turn, they produce acetic acid in your gut, which makes the rest of your body happy. Now, how about vitamin D? Well, that's tricky because vitamin D is not commonly found. And when it is, it is often in a, quote, deactivated form. Our bodies actually produce our own pre-vitamin D, if you will, but the necessary component to activate it is sunlight. Specifically, the UVB rays from the sun acting on 7-dehydrocholesterol, which our bodies make, converts it into a form of vitamin D that can be utilized in various places throughout the body. So first and foremost, getting sunlight increases your vitamin D. Aside from that, fish and eggs are your next best bet for vitamin D. Seeing as how sunlight does not violate anyone's diet protocols, just how much sunlight is adequate to achieve the recommended daily intake, or RDI, of vitamin D? Well, one study wanted to see just exactly how powerful the sun can be on converting our 7-DHC into usable vitamin D. 96 volunteers were recruited and were broken up into younger and older cohorts, including men and women. Participants wore shorts and the ladies wore sports bras, and they all laid on their backs and stomachs in the sun for 15 minutes aside between 11.30 a.m. and 2 p.m. So a total of 30 minutes and sometime within that time window, depending on cloud cover and weather. It was calculated that approximately 43% of the skin on men was exposed and 41% on the women. So pretty darn close. For the older cohort, blood was drawn prior to sunbathing and then taken over the next three days to, to sample serum vitamin D levels. So for the older cohort, with one day of 30 minutes of sun exposure, Serum vitamin D levels rose from 11 nanomoles per liter to 15 a day later. So when the blood was drawn the next day, those levels had increased. And then 
the following day, so two whole, do, two whole days later, it continued to rise to 18 nanomoles a liter. And even on the third day, despite dropping a little, the values were still above baseline at 15 nanomoles a liter. Younger cohort responded even more strongly and quickly. With after only one exposure on the first day, serum levels jumped from 11 to 23 nanomoles a liter after one day and stayed in that neighborhood for three days, dropping only to 21 nanomoles per liter by the third day. This is very encouraging as one quick sun bath is enough to elevate levels for three whole days. Needless to say, the time frame of exposure will, will change based on the amount of clothes you're wearing and the time of day that you go outside as noon has the highest levels of UVB. Mindful, however, that windows typically have a UV film on them. So even if you have the luxury of sitting next to a window all day, you'll get zero UV unless you put that window down. And while it sounds simple, not all of us have the luxury of getting up and going outside whenever we please. Work the night shift, live in a dangerous area, or have poor air quality, such as pollution or smoke from wildfires, just going outside might actually be detrimental to your health. In those situations, taking a vitamin D supplement might actually be the best alternative if accessing the free sun is out of your reach. Okay, we covered lots of points today regarding bone density. There are a number of factors that play a role, and no one factor is the master determinant for controlling the destiny of your bones. However, the more levers you can pull in your favor, the greater the likelihood for your success. So let's review everything we discussed today. Bones are 60% inorganic, 30% organic, and 10% water. Vitamin D, while not in our bones, controls the absorption of the minerals that comprise our bones, like calcium and phosphate. Hydroxyapatite is the predominant inorganic crystal within our bones and is made of calcium and phosphate. Citrate is used all over our body, but has its highest concentrations in our bones and is used to support the crystals and determine their shape and thickness. Improperly functioning kidneys can cause us to secrete too much citrate, which in turn can lead to lower bone density. Arguably, the biggest factor for dictating bone mass is actually muscle mass. Bones and muscles crosstalk so that they grow together and shrink together. Taking supplements alone won't make bones grow, just like only eating protein won't make muscles grow. Bones and muscles need physical stress like exercise to stimulate their growth. While hormones can play a role in bone density, it's been shown that physical activity can still drive bone density in spite of lowered hormone levels. Many healthy foods contain calcium, but only a few contain vitamin D. Vitamin D can easily be obtained through simple sun exposure, and the benefits can be felt from that days later. That's it for today's episode of Primity. If you have found this information helpful, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when new episodes arrive. You can also find us on YouTube Podcasts. If you think you would benefit from receiving health and wellness coaching, you can contact us at info at we're always curious to see what you're curious about, so send us your questions, comments, and feedback to info at And as always, 
Strength comes in many forms, from within and without. So be strong to be useful. Take care, everyone, and stay strong.